Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 11, Why Parasites Prevail. Often elites have relied on sheer brute force. If the Huan rulers of China or the Normans in England would maintain garrisons across the country to ensure taxes were collected and that their will prevailed. From the time of Norman rule over England to Englishmen ruling over India, there have been an endless series of examples of small elites maintaining their position over others through military might. Force, however, is not enough to explain the ability of small elites to extort. In Why Nations Fail, the economist Darren Akamoglu and political scientist James Robinson make a compelling case to show how powerful elites are able to rig things through institutions. Drawing on the history of societies from Central America in the 16th century to Central Africa today, they argue that when a society's institutions are extractive, operating in the interests of a parasitic few, societies remain in a state of Malthusian misery. It is, they suggest, only when institutions are inclusive and the surplus can no longer be siphoned off that intensive growth is possible. In Venice, they observe, the closure of the Great Council, the Serata, and the subsequent creation of the Council of Ten served as a sort of institutional tipping point, the moment when a relatively open Venetian oligarchy became increasingly exclusive and extractive. Going back even further, there was a shift in Rome away from the Senate and powerful elected magistrates towards a symbol, system of centralised, all-powerful emperors. Extractive institutions, they point out, were not just the instruments of extortion. The shape of a society's institutions, they argue, determined if elites were extractive or not. This institutional determinism, however, puts the cart before the horse. Rome was long an oligarchy, but power within the Roman Republic was not concentrated because the Senate overturned the position of the elected tribunes in the tribal assembly. The tribunes and assembly lost their powers to the Senate because an ever more powerful elite had emerged there. Institutional change reflected the fact that there had been a shift in the balance of power within the Roman body politic, rather than causing it. In late 13th century Venice, power was not concentrated because of the creation of extractive institutions. The new Council of Ten marked a concentration of power that had already happened and which merely began to manifest itself in such institutional arrangements. Perhaps the even bigger problem with this institutional explanation as to why elites are able to extort is that it simply kicks the analytical can further down the road. If it's the shape of institutions that determines if society takes off, what then determines if institutions are inclusive or extractive? Akamoglu and Robinson imply that good, inclusive institutions arose by accident. Extractive institutions get replaced by better, more inclusive ones because of, quote, critical junctures in history, they say. Inclusive institutions arise when, quote, precipitous existing institutions, unquote, are already in place, they claim. And some luck, they suggest, is key because history always unfolds in a contingent way. Critical junctures 
precipitous institutions or an existing luck. Having advanced the idea that institutions were primary causation when it comes to human progress, at the very last moment, Akamoglu and Robinson veer back towards random determinism. Institutional determinism leaves us with the unsatisfactory idea that random chance shaped institutions. The prevalence of extractive institutions in a particular society can help us understand how elites within a society entrench themselves. But it does not necessarily account for why they should do so. So why was it that minority elites were able to maintain their hold over everyone else over the centuries? Such arrangements would have seemed normal for most of human history, not only because it was just the way things were, but because of ethical systems that implied it was how things were supposed to be. Who do you most admire? The late Steve Jobs, the driving force behind one of the world's largest companies? Or maybe Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, the greatest retail business on the planet? Or Ma Hauteng, who's amassed an even greater fortune, or perhaps Mark Zuckerberg, the zillionaire? What about Elon Musk with his remarkable vision of hyperloops and reusable space rockets? Or the guy at the end of the street where you live who's just opened a new bakery? In productive societies, the productive tend to be admired and well-treated. Today we, albeit at times grudgingly, respect entrepreneurs like Zuckerberg and Musk. And so too in early Republican Rome, the self-made men and merchants, the equites class, were respected. They shared the Senate with patricians as equals. Likewise, in the early medieval period, Venice was a city of merchants run by and for the merchant interests. So too in many northern Italian city-states before 1350, and in the towns and cities of Flanders in the 17th century. Traders and middlemen were free to live under merchant-made rules. They weren't beholden to the whims of kings or to the extortion of emperors. In Britain, the city fathers who built Glasgow and Birmingham during the 19th century at a time of industrial takeoff were merchants and businessmen. The city halls they erected were temples to trade, the exquisite details that decorated them a celebration of commerce. Contrast that to the way that merchants and middlemen were treated in most pre-industrial societies. American academic Deirdre McCloskey has noted how in productive societies, merchants have been able to trade and exchange without being despised or persecuted. But in most pre-modern societies, she notes, the sneers of the aristocrats, the damning of the priest, the envy of the peasant, all directed against trade and profit, have long sufficed to kill economic growth. Whether Edo Japan, medieval India, or Ming China, each of these societies had one strikingly similar feature. Rigidly hierarchical societies where merchants were always placed very firmly at the bottom. In Japan, merchants were forced to live in their own urban quarters and without legal rights. In India, traders were the lower caste. In China, merchants were made to wear distinctive clothes so to stand out as objects of contempt. In 7 BC, Emperor Ai banned them from owning land and becoming state officials. 
merchants were endlessly told what prices they might charge. Then they were blamed for not supplying at the preferred price. They were taxed and regulated. They were ordered to extend credit and loans and often found their debtors unilaterally cancelled the forced loan. After the Signori took over the northern Italian city-states and started to prey on the productive, merchants began to be seen as menial and were excluded from the upper echelons of society. In Rome in AD 301, at a time when the parasitic were firmly in the ascendancy, Emperor Diocletian issued an edict that raged against merchants and middlemen for their unbridled passion for gain, threatening with the death penalty those who didn't sell at the prices he preferred. Merchants and middlemen were despised in medieval Europe and by the Ottoman elite. Ethnic groups associated with trade and exchange, Jews in the 15th century Spain, Asians in 1970s Uganda, were often demonised, persecuted and even driven out by the elites. Elites, no doubt, found it easier to extort from those they had helped first to vilify. But in many pre-modern societies, it was not just a case of doing down the productive or one particular productive section of the population. Parasitic elites often extorted, promoted ethical codes that encouraged and legitimised extortion of their hosts and encouraged the hosts' acquiescence. Think of those patrimonial societies which existed, often unchanged for thousands of years in Egypt, Iraq, India and Mexico. They might have each been separated by wide seas and long centuries, but from the cities of the Aztecs to those of the Egyptians or the Sumerians, those societies had some strikingly similar features. Each of them had a small powerful priesthood that presided over a mass of toiling farmers, aided by a caste of warriors. Temples were often the political centres from which these states were administered. From pharaohic Egypt to ancient Mesopotamia, those that created the wealth, the farmers and the merchants, had their wealth taken from them in the name of a divinely ordained order. This sort of patrimonial parasitism was, if you like, sanctified. Peasants were expected to yield much of their harvest to their overlords, often leaving them little more than a subsistence existence. Of course, force was available to ensure that the producers handed over their harvests. Non-payment of taxes was often regarded as insurrection and treated as such. Slavery or serfdom might have been the means of extortion, but such systems were not only underpinned by fear of the whip or worse. If slaves and serfs were never willing participants in the process of their own extortion, they were often, surprisingly to our way of thinking, passive and pliant. There have been surprisingly few big slave revolts in recorded history. Spartacus in the 1st century BT, the Zand revolt in what we now call Iraq in the 9th century, and the slave rebellion in 18th century French Haishi are rare examples. Perhaps this reflects the fact that, for long periods of time, those who laboured for their overlords were not only bound by whips and chains, they were bound by moral codes that inclined them to accept their servile status, perhaps in a way that we, 
with our 21st century outlook find hard to imagine. The priestly elites had implanted in the minds of their human hosts a bogus altruism which demanded self-sacrifice in the interests of the divine, sometimes literally from the victims of the Aztec elite. In each of those ancient patrimonial societies, the creation myths might have differed, but always the creation story contained the same constant. Man was created to serve the gods or at least their priestly representatives on earth. The gods were lords, and the priests and emperors masters. Sin was defined as man seeking to live on his own terms, or almost as bad, his failure to hand over half of his harvest. Elites have constantly invoked a set of ethics that normalise extortion, legitimising and sanctifying the transfer from the productive to the parasitic. The Abbasids and the Ottomans invoked the Quran to justify the Jiza tax on the unbeliever in order to pay for their life of luxury in their harems. The medieval Christian church too invoked all manner of theological justification for leaving your estate to the church. When the Japanese peasants fed the samurai warrior caste, they did so because it was their divine duty to provide for them. As the 19th century French thinker Frederick Bastiat puts it, when plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men living together in society, they create for themselves in the course of time a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. The moral and legal codes prevalent in Confucian China, Brahmin India or Edo Japan or indeed feudal Europe authorised and glorified extortion. Each of those codes was based on a bogus notion of reality, on superstition, custom and tradition. They elevated the interests of the parasitic over the productive. Merchants in China were not at the bottom of the heap by accident. Confucian teaching deliberately and systematically placed them there. In an almost complete inversion of reality, merchants, the truly productive, were endlessly described as parasitic. Together with farmers, their role was to provide for the scholarly elite. Confucianism not only insisted on it, but insisted that it was celestially ordained. After the expulsion of the Wan dynasty, and in accordance with Confucian teachings, China's rulers encouraged self-sufficient farming communities. They deliberately discouraged trade, not only with the outside world, but within China itself. Trade was repeatedly sanctioned as ignoble and unworthy. Had Jack Ma founded a trading company in 15th century China, he would have been hounded by China's rulers rather than fated as a national icon. If trade was to be tolerated, it was to be controlled and regulated. Not only did these parasitic creeds denigrate the productive and free exchange, they often sanctified their own extractive rule with self-reinforcing belief systems. For half of its life, the parasitic lance liver fluke lives inside a cow. For much of the other half, it lives in cow poo. It's easy to work out how the liver fluke 
gets from its first home inside a cow to its second home inside a cow pack. But how does this tiny little parasitic worm manage to get back into the cow to complete its life cycle? It finds an unsuspecting host, an ant, and gets inside its mind, quite literally. The fluke infects the ant and then alters the neurochemistry of the ant's brain, particularly the part that controls locomotion. This causes the ant to climb to the top of a tall blade of grass and to stay there. Why? So that the ant atop a grass blade gets eaten by a passing cow, allowing the flute to get back to where it wants to be. And it's not only liver flukes that alter the behaviour of their hosts in such a way. Neuroparasitologists have discovered a myriad of ways in which parasitic organisms don't merely siphon resources from their hosts, but manipulate their minds to make them behave in a way that serves the parasite. There's a species of hairworm that makes crickets and grasshoppers drown themselves in order to get into water where they need to be to breed. A kind of wasp has been discovered that manipulates orb spiders to build them cocoons made of their finest spider silk. When such parasites manipulate their host's behaviour, they do so by releasing neurochemicals into the host organism, which mimic the host's own neurochemistry. This isn't, of course, the only way that parasites manipulate their host's behaviour. Often they do so by deceiving their host's sense of self-interest. An adult warbler instinctively spends every daylight hour finding grubs to feed its fledglings. Its frantic feeding behaviour is intended to ensure its young grow as fast as possible, maximising their chances of survival. But cuckoo chicks are, of course, masters at deception. Tricking the warbler into believing that it, the cuckoo chick, is part of its brood, it takes advantage of the warbler's feeding instinct, getting fed a steady supply of grubs and killing off its smaller warbler stepsisters and stepbrothers when mum and dad aren't looking. Perhaps human parasites are also in the business of manipulation and mind control. Not so much through neurochemistry, but by deception. Do they not use an ethical sleight of hand to deceive their human hosts, making the population serve their interests while believing they're acting in their self-interest? More than that, surely extractive elites promulgate a deceptive image of reality which manipulates their host's behaviour to serve their own ends. Perhaps this all sounds a little far-fetched. Isn't it just a little conspiratorial, these cunning elites concocting fairy tales to deceive the masses? Yet how else do you account for the case of the Vaisya caste living in India a thousand years ago? Farmers and merchants, they produced the wealth, yet paid extortionate taxes. Most of what the Vaisya produced, they had to hand over to the elite, the priestly Brahmin, and warrior Kashitra caste. The Brahmins and the warrior caste lived tax-free. Now that's obviously unfair, right? 
to our 21st century way of thinking. Of course it's unfair. But not if you bought into the belief system at the time. Ancient Hindu ethics held that the upper caste had belonged to a lower caste in a previous life. It would be unjust, or so they argued, for someone having paid higher taxes in a former life to be expected to pay taxes again in this life. As for the lower caste, provided they paid their taxes on time in this life, well, of course, they would be reborn into the upper caste in a future life, where they too could enjoy tax-free status. Since they'd be tax-exempt in the next life, was it not only fair that they should pay high taxes in this one? Laughable, you think? Absurd? Perhaps this reasoning is absurd to our contemporary way of thinking. But the way that people think can be manipulated, our sense of right and wrong, what is fair and what is just, are not constant, but malleable. Many millions have lived and died not just in medieval India, believing that it was their lot in life to serve an elite, as part of some divinely sanctioned cosmic order. Have you ever pondered why it was that in Europe in the Middle Ages the church became one of the largest landowners? Well, every farmer had to pay the church one-tenth of what they produced, the tithe. The proceeds of this tax were stored in the tithe barns. And if you didn't do your bit to keep the tithe barns stocked up, you would go to hell. You and your children would go to hell too if you didn't baptise them and pay the church as you did so. You'd go to hell if you didn't marry and pay the church for the privilege. You'd go to hell if you didn't pay for the buried, to be buried on consecrated land. It's hardly surprising that the church grew rich. The church also gained from grants of land from aristocrats, who in return had their offspring appointed to bishoprics and other powerful positions in the church. It was an exchange that suited both sides. Long before Martin Luther protested the selling of indulgences, ecclesiastical ethics seemed to suit the material interests of the medieval church. Why didn't people wake up? Surely you might well wonder. People would simply have seen the moral codes that aggrandised the priestly elites for what they were. Luther no doubt felt the same. How could people not see through the bogus conception of reality? Yet, for generation after generation, people didn't wake up to it. For centuries in Europe, serfs submitted to their overlords and to knights. In Japan, the peasants did much the same to their diamo and the samurai. Among the mayor, the lower orders sacrificed their harvests and sometimes literally themselves to the princes and the priests. Different cultures, different continents, but in each time there was an ethical system and a bogus notion of reality to justify submission. Like reed warbler parents frantically feeding an oversized cuckoo chicken, humans are often deluded into thinking that their interests are served by serving the parasites. Perhaps it's hard to see what's happening when this is happening, because it's difficult to always discern what produces progress. Many ideas like comparative advantage and specialization in exchange are deeply counterintuitive. 
Societies in the hands of extractive, ruinous elites can appear successful and strong, at least for a while. Rome was an empire with greater grandeur in almost every way than Rome had had as a mere republic. As an oligarchy sapped Italian society's productive strength, for several centuries Rome more than compensated for that by helping herself to the produce of others outside Italy. The Roman elite amassed wealth by redistribution and amidst the triumphs and imperial splendour, that aggrandizement would have seemed immediate and impressive. The decline of the underlying generator of wealth, of intensive economic growth through mutual exchange, was gradual and not immediately visible. Rome seemed more resplendent and imposing in 100 AD than she had in 100 BC. It would have been easy to believe that Roman exceptionalism lay in conquest and empire rather than in a carefully devised republican tradition of dispersed power. The Venetian state appeared at its most opulent and exuberant at a time of entrenched oligarchy. In fact, many of its greatest artistic and architectural achievements happened precisely because there was a wealthy, extravagant elite on hand to pour money into such things. Beneath the decadence and glitter, decline might have set in, but it would not have perhaps seemed apparent. We don't even need to look back that far to see how seeds of decline can be mistaken for progress. Take, for example, Zimbabwe in 1980, which became an independent state. Far from thriving as a newly liberated democracy, Zimbabwe became Robert Mugabe's personal fiefdom, a sort of privatised kleptocracy. As a consequence, Zimbabwe's GDP per person fell by almost half between 1980 and 2010. Zimbabweans ate better on the day that they achieved independence than they did 33 years later, when they had a lower daily calorie intake. Indeed, Zimbabwe is one of the few places on the planet that's poorer today than it was in the early 1980s. But even despite such unequivocal decline, for many years, both inside and outside Zimbabwe, Mugabe was lauded as a liberator by those who couldn't seem to see the destructive consequences of his government. Imagine how much harder it must be to discern a more gradual decline spread out over decades and generations, or how difficult, bordering on the impossible, it would have been to envisage not an actual loss of output, but a lost opportunity to have had a higher output that never even materialised. So long as parasites could propagate their bogus image of reality, their hold on society stayed strong, and there was little hope that humans could escape the Malthusian trap. Where parasites were weaker, progress was possible. According to the Australian historian E.L. Jones, Market activity was greatest in areas of half-hearted control, such as borderlands between feudal units or pairs of political authorities, or on inaccessible mud banks, such as Venice, or in that other swampy corner of Europe known as the Netherlands, home of the world's first industrial revolution. It was in such places, peripheral to not only European power politics, but to the creeds 
of mind control that progress became possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.